Our reading for this morning is from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 12, chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And you can follow along in the bulletin on page 6 if you would like to. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that you would come with grace and great power in this time. You know my weakness. You know our weakness. We're prone to wander in our hearts. Distractions abound. Our hearts grow cold. And so we know what we most need right now is the Holy Spirit. Please come and give us an enlivening power. Uh, not, not just mental focus, but spiritual focus of heart. Help us to see Jesus, even as our brother Stephen saw Jesus, a, a vision before him, before us now. We pray that you would change our lives. Please come and glorify yourself in these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace 
Grace grows best in winter. These are words that were written in a letter by Samuel Rutherford. He was a Scottish pastor and a professor uh, from the 17th century, and he was persecuted, even imprisoned for his faith. He was a man that was well accustomed, acquainted with suffering, pain, trouble, hardship, opposition because of his faith in Jesus in, on top of just the ordinary and shared afflictions of life. And one day as he wrote another Christian a letter as he was prone to do to offer some words of comfort and reassurance, he wrote, grace grows best in winter. A mystery of the Christian faith that grace grows best in the winter of suffering and of trials and of, of afflictions. God meets us then and there, most especially, and through us in the lives of other people. Grace grows best in winter. A short statement sums up, I think, fairly well the main theme of this passage that we're looking at. And it sums up what I believe ought to be a major theme, conviction, for every Christian who lives in this broken and sometimes frightening world, which of course is the only world in which we can live the Christian faith. Oh, how is this so? We see this in the story of Stephen. We met him last week, the earlier part of chapter 6, when we learned that he was one of the seven men that was chosen by the early church and the apostles to lead the distribution of food to hungry widows in the church. We were told in verse 5 of chapter 6 that Stephen was described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And here in the very first line, first sentence of today's passage, we're told that he was a man full of God's grace and power. One commentator describes Stephen as someone in whom, quote, sweetness and strength merged in one personality. Sweetness and strength. Well, as we're told in verse 9, opposition arose against Stephen in his preaching and compassion ministries. He was a threat to the religious authorities, apparently. Members of the local synagogue began to argue with Stephen, we're told. They began a smear campaign against him. It says in verse 11 that they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. It's clear that this was a false accusation being brought forward by false witnesses. Verse 12 tells us that they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And so Stephen was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the council of religious authorities. He was brought before them for interrogation. During that time when he was questioned, Stephen responds with an extended sermon or speech, which you don't have printed in your bulletins. It's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts, and so it's very much worth your 
time from verses 13 through 53, though it's not something we're going to cover here today. But there, Stephen retells Israel's history from the Old Testament. And he shows how God, through every generation, was always present with his people, even without a building like the temple, intimately present with his covenant people. And Stephen also rehearsed how again and again through every generation, how God's people have always been persistently unfaithful to him, how they rejected God's appointed leaders in every generation, Stephen pointed out, even until that present generation in the case of Jesus, of course. And here's how he finished his sermon in verse 51, also not in your printing. He said, you stick Necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, who of course was Jesus, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. They didn't like that very much. Understandably, and so, perhaps less understandably, they rushed at him violently, says in verse 58, dragged him out of the city and stoned him. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, the first in a long line that, in fact, continues to this very day, a line of those who have died for their faith in Christ. And that story itself is a stirring one, one worth reading perhaps again later this week as you consider God's word. But there are several lessons, I think, that are worth paying attention to, and they teach us a bit about our winters, our winters of suffering. What are some lessons that we learn from Stephen's story? Three things quickly. One, we learn about righteous suffering. Second, we learn about redemptive suffering. And thirdly, we learn about rejoicing and suffering. Righteous suffering, redemptive suffering, and rejoicing and suffering. Let's take a look first at this idea, this strange idea of righteous suffering. And as we talk about suffering, of course, we're speaking not only about religious persecution and persevering under that pressure, but we're also talking about the wide range of pains and pressures that the Bible counts as suffering, whether if that might be intense conflict that you're facing in your relationships, whether if it's pressures that you feel in your personal finances, whether if it's struggles that you have presently with physical health ailments, or maybe it is actually opposition that you're facing for your faith in Christ. These are all the ways in which we might be experiencing pain and pressure, and this is what we need to consider from this passage, and it's that we tend to believe that pain and struggle grants us rights, even permission to be unrighteous. If it hurts, well, then I can just be a jerk. I have a right when I'm suffering to be 
insufferable. It's sort of a lame example, but I was reminded of this in my own life when recently my children with sort of a growing chorus testified. It kind of felt like they were testifying against me when they said, Daddy, in the morning you're a little bit grumpy. And I didn't have much to say. I know it's true. Paula's told me the same thing. I'm always in denial about it. I say I'm able to still eke out some compassion, some smiles, a hug perhaps. But they told me the truth. Again, one by one, every child, even down to Noel, who had no idea what we were talking about, said, sure, Daddy. Yes, Daddy Grumpy. You know, because if the morning hurts, I can just be a jerk. We really believe this. When in suffering, I have a right to be insufferable, ornery, angry, vengeful, accusatory, impatient. When it's hot like it is today, well, don't you just understand this is the way I am? But look at Stephen. Look at Stephen. How he was bold and unflinching with his words, yes, strong, and yet also meek. We find these incredible, incredible words. In verse 60 of chapter 7, right in the middle there, that even as he was being stoned, he fell on his knees, probably both out of a worshipful spirit before God, but more likely because of the clobbering of his head and body with the rocks with which he was being pelted. And even then he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he died. He forgave his enemies, even as Jesus taught Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, those famous words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what's interesting, of course, as we read those words of Stephen's just unbelievable response to opposition, pressure, and literal pain, praying for those who were killing him, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, The curious thing, of course, if you're familiar with the story of Christ, is that he was bearing the very image of Christ. Christ who, while he hung on the cross, crucified unjustly, sneered at, mocked, and spit upon the very beloved Son of God who had done nothing to anyone wrongly and only loved perfectly, suffering for our sins, yet treated unjustly at the same time. We're told in Luke 23, 34, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You see, because when you're filled with the Spirit of Jesus, as Stephen was, as we're told in verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, when you're filled with the Spirit of Jesus, you begin to look and sound like Jesus. You begin to look and sound like Jesus. He gives you grace to endure suffering righteously with the character of Christ, humbly, not retaliating, 
to endure pressures, even with joy, uh, to suffer pain, physical, emotional, relational, psychological, with patience, with gentleness, even hard mornings, without grumpiness, without grumpiness. For some of us, that might be the greatest work of supernatural grace. For others, you have something far more weighty on your minds, of course. 1 Peter 2.23 reminds us about the manner in which Christ endured suffering himself. Peter said, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And in chapter 4, verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Stephen was thinking not of himself, but of those who were so lost, far from God. He was thinking about their well-being, their good, even in his moment of greatest pain. But how did Stephen do it? this righteous kind of suffering, what was his secret? Well, two things, as I already mentioned. Stephen needed the Holy Spirit, verse 55. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That was what was the secret to his success, as it were, in this moment. It's important to say that because we're sometimes deceived into believing that what we really need is a better natural temperament. I just need to be of a certain personality or perhaps Stephen was just a really nice guy and I'm just not like that. The great hope that we have is not that uh, Stephen was acting out of his natural personality, but rather that he was acting out of the spirit. The great hope is that we have, regardless of whatever natural temperament you might have, we have access to the very same spirit. That you too can have the spirit of Jesus in your greatest moments of pressure, you too can forgive even as you're being pelted upon, whether by stones or by heavy words. You too can stand with patience and gentleness and righteousness before God and the world. But not only was Stephen given the Holy Spirit, but it was the Holy Spirit who gave Stephen a vision of Christ himself. Notice how in This darkest moment, Stephen had his eyes fixed upon Jesus. We're told in verse 55 that he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. And so Stephen said, looking up, he said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Of course, Jesus, just a few months prior, had been standing before the very people to whom Stephen was speaking, being sentenced to death, to be crucified, to suffer hell on our behalf, those who deserved eternal punishment before God for all of our selfishness and sin, and yet Jesus bore it for us. That very same Jesus, having died for our sins and having risen again and having ascended into heaven, now was in heaven before God. And what Stephen sees is a picture of Jesus in sort of a courtroom. Of course, the throne of a royal king was not only a throne room, it was also where judgments were rendered. 
Jesus stood in the courtroom of heaven. And according to Stephen's vision, he saw in Jesus a lawyer. Let all the lawyers in the room say amen. Here was Jesus serving as Stephen's advocate. One that was testifying before God. Stephen is a sinner, yet I have paid for all his sins. Testifying before the court of heaven. Stephen, in fact, is unrighteous, yet I stand before you as the righteous one. And therefore, in me, Stephen is declared righteous. Stephen has an advocate, and if you are in Christ, you too have the very same advocate in the court of heaven, arguing, pleading your case of innocence, forgiveness, righteousness, and holiness every moment of every passing second of heaven and on earth. Jesus standing before God. In other words, Jesus was showing Stephen to be vindicated. As a New Testament scholar, Fred Bruce, once said about this passage, Stephen has been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God. Why was this so important? Why was this so critical? Well, remember in this verse 54, we're told about how violently the Sanhedrin was now coming upon Stephen. Stephen surely knew what his fate was likely to be. We're told when the members of the Sanhedrin heard Stephen's sermon, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And this is why it's so important that Stephen saw Jesus as he did. Because at the very same time that Stephen's accusers condemned him in the earthly court, guilty, 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 Jesus was vindicating Stephen in the heavenly court, righteous, righteous, righteous. And it's only with that strength of heart and soul, with a clear conscience and an encouraged, eternally encouraged heart, that Stephen could then stand with peace, which just sounds like such a, a weak word given the circumstances, but an otherworldly peace and presence before God, even to the point of him being able to think about the good of his enemies, to utter that final prayer, Father, forgive them, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this sin Against him. You see, this was Stephen's secret. Not just a mild personality, but the Holy Spirit. And not just the fullness of the Spirit, but the fullness of the Spirit that pointed him to a fresh, in the moment vision of a Christ who vindicates him in the courtroom of heaven. Some of us struggle when we suffer. Because we don't know for sure that we've been loved by and vindicated by Christ. And when we feel attacked, 
We feel like we need to prove ourselves when we feel pained. We feel like we need to heal ourselves when we feel uncertain about God's love. We feel like we need to conjure up certainty ourselves. What we most need is a fresh vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God with your name engraved in the palms of his hands. So how might seeing Jesus standing at God's right hand on your behalf Give you greater confidence, compassion, peace during whatever time of pain or struggle or trial that you might be facing today. Do you know that Jesus really can give you his patience, his grace to withstand pain and opposition, to suffer righteously, to love your enemies, to persevere with holiness in your greatest moments of horror, to still look and smell and to sound like Jesus. Do you know that's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit? First, righteous suffering. The second lesson is redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. We really believe in our hearts when we're facing pain and hardship. We tend to believe, don't we, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. Or at least that I should be able to master my circumstances to such a degree that I can sort of avoid or eliminate all discomfort. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to desire that. Who doesn't desire that? The Bible never tells us to go running after pain with a twisted, holy sadism. No, But there are ways in which we believe that we're entitled to a pain-free life and it really screws up our hearts. I've been helped by listening to and reading and pondering the words of Kate Bowler, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, a a thoughtful thinker and academic and also a sufferer of stage three cancer. She actually has as her academic focus, what's often called the prosperity gospel. Uh, This, of course, is the error-filled teaching in some churches that good things happen to good people, and you shouldn't expect any differently. If you're good, if you're faithful, if you pray, if you tithe, if you seek God, well, then God will only give you health and wealth and happiness. It's not only what you're entitled to, it's what you can earn before God if you push the right buttons and do the right things. And there's a version of this that's uniquely thick in America because of the uniqueness of our American culture, American optimism, and American commitments to happiness. And this is what Kate writes, Dr. Bowler writes, or has said about this topic. She said, if you love If you live in this culture, whether you are religious or not, it is extremely difficult to avoid falling into the trap of believing that virtue and success go hand in hand. The more I stare down my diagnosis, the more I recognize that I had my own version of the idea that good things happen to good people. We believe this, 
And therefore, when suffering strikes, we're even more devastated. When suffering strikes, we even erupt with anger, a shaking of our fists at God, or perhaps a deep depression or depressed state that no longer believes that God could possibly love me so. And yet Stephen's story teaches us something very different, and yet it's a theme and a promise and a vision that is so central to the way that the Bible speaks about pain, we need to hear it again and again and again. And it's this, that God has mysterious purposes for and in our pain, which does not mean we always are conscious of them or can always trace the fingerprints and the hand of God in them. But that we are led to believe that God can use our pain for ours and for others' gain. As Johnny Erickson Tata has put succinctly and so powerfully, even as she herself by faith wrestles with her paraplegia, she wrote, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves, including the martyrdom of a faithful witness named Stephen. You see, the peculiar conclusion of this story of Stephen's stoning is found in chapter 8, verse 1, and some of the verses surrounding there. We're told that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And so it wasn't just Stephen that suffered that day. It was a number of Christians in Jerusalem as violence tends to beget more violence. We see that all around us, even today. And we're told that all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And we're told in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And if you've been following the story of Acts with us, then you might understand how remarkable this is. Because Jesus foretold this moment. In fact, he commanded this moment far before the story began in verse 8 of chapter 1 before he ascended into heaven. And he gave his disciples his final word of commission. He said, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus said this moment would come. He commanded the disciples to fulfill this moment in time. And yet he never spelled out how exactly it would come how exactly it would happen that the gospel would be brought not just to Jerusalem, but from Jerusalem to the surrounding region and provinces of Judea and Samaria. How did that happen? Through Stephen's martyrdom. Through a great persecution that erupted in Jerusalem. Through the scattering of God's people in fear and pain. God's sovereign purposes for his gospel and the saving of many lives was brought about by a death. Oh my goodness. Should we be surprised that this would be the pattern? This whole movement of the gospel in our very own lives being centered upon one who brought life 
through death. One who was risen from the dead after having been tortured and killed. One who saved many through the death of one, even Jesus. You see, redemptive suffering is the story of Jesus for those who not only bear the name of Jesus, but who are filled by the Spirit of Jesus. Should we expect God to use suffering in our lives any differently? In fact, we have here in this story our first mentions of a young man named Saul, we see in verse 58, before whom these very people stoning Stephen laid down their coats in honor of this young Pharisee. Saul, who we're told in verse 1 of chapter 8, approved of their killing of Stephen. Saul, who in the next chapter next week we will see, was confronted by the mighty grace of Jesus, whose life was turned upside down or rather right side up, who became even the great apostle Paul, the great explicator of the gospel of grace. You see, the death of Stephen resulted in the life of Paul. And even more than that, beyond Paul, there was, of course, a great revival that broke out in the region of Samaria. As Philip, we're told in these later verses here, went down to a city in Samaria, verse 5 of chapter 8, and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid a close, close attention to what he said, for it was shrieks, impure spirits came out. Many and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, verse 8, so there was great joy in that city. This has been the story of the Christian church for all time. Even in the second century, Tertullian wrote this about the sufferings of the early Christians. The more often we are mown down by you, he said to the watching Roman world, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And of course, Jesus himself said this in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces more fruit. It was said also in the second century by Roman pagans testifying about the dynamics of the Christian church. This was written too. The more they are punished, the more the others increase in number. You see, this is the way in which God mysteriously uses our sufferings. In our lives, yes, that pain, that trial, that struggle that you're facing now, do you know promises like these? Romans 5 verse 3, we glory in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. I have a long way to grow in compassion, gentleness, and patience. But I know I wouldn't be even close to as far along as God has me on the journey of growing in those virtues were it not for pain and trial in my life. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, We were under great pressure, far beyond our abilities to endure, 
so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened. Why? Why this pain? Why this stress? Why this trouble? This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Has pain and trial taught you to trust in God, depend upon God before in your life? Might he be doing that for you even today? But not only my personal benefits, the ways in which God uses pain to change me, but let's also notice the way in which God uses our pain for his purposes for the world, for those around us, for the souls around us that Stephen's death impacted. As we know later in the book of Acts in chapter 22, Paul actually reflects back on this moment, indicating that it stirred him, maybe even shook him up to not only see Stephen faithfully suffering in the way that he did, but to hear the words from his mouth, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Forgive these people. Saul, who had never seen anything quite like that. None of these pretended the pain didn't hurt. We're told in verse 2 of chapter 8 that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. There was great mourning in that city. We're called to mourn our pain. We're not called to anesthetize ourselves to them. We're not called to deny them or pretend it doesn't hurt. But we are called to see perhaps the deeper purposes of God. Ask yourselves, I join you this day in asking, are there ways that God might be using suffering redemptively in your life? Or in our community, in our church, in our city? Maybe what that might mean for you is that you stop hiding your pain and your weakness. Maybe you might even be wrongly believing that it's a better witness or testimony to the world for you to put on a good face, a happy face, a perfect face for the world, when in fact what they might need to see is your suffering, your limitations, your failures, your hurts, and your wounds. Perhaps that is going to be the means by which people most see the one whom we call the suffering Savior. Will you dare to stop hiding your pain? Finally, and very briefly, we're told that there's an element of even rejoicing in the suffering. Rejoicing that comes when Philip shared good news We're told in verse 8 of chapter 8 at the very bottom of our passage, there was great joy in that city. And so what was produced by this suffering of Stephen was not simply righteousness and salvation, but begrudging results or maybe good stuff, but with a lot of misery. We're told that the worst of sorrow and suffering actually resulted in others' joy. Who can do that but the Spirit of God? Who can do that through you but Christ himself? There's righteous suffering, redemptive suffering. There's rejoicing even in our suffering. Like us, Samuel Rutherford, whom I quoted at the outset of this sermon, had to learn the mystery of God's purposes in his suffering. 
He didn't know it or understand it right away. He had to learn it. In fact, in that same letter, he explained that a little bit about how he didn't get it in the beginning. He was even mad at Jesus, accusing him in the midst of his pain. But this is what he said. I, like a fool, summoned my Lord and libeled unkindness against him. But now I pass from that foolish pursuit. I give over the plea. He is God and I am man. In my prison, he hath shown me daylight. He doubt not hide his love any longer. Christ was disguised and masked, and I apprehended it was not he, but he hath said, it is I, be not afraid. And now his love is better than wine. In our pain, we too accuse Christ. May Christ be better to us than wine or coffee, if you prefer, that we might learn these lessons to testify with Stephen, to testify with Saul, with the early church, and with Christ himself, that grace grows best in winter. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would impress this upon our hearts, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would set us free, that you would give us insight into your purposes, helping us to cling to your promises, to suffer righteously, to see your redemption even in our darkness, and to put all our hope and the transforming power of your grace. Do that in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.